Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Let us hear the word of God as we continue our study of the book of Genesis. This week we pick up with Genesis chapter 21, verse 9, and uh, we'll only go through verse 21. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Genesis chapter 21, beginning with verse 9. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne, to Abraham mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. But God was with, God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a tearjerker. It's very difficult to read this story without accusing God of being evil. I hope you all realize that. Um, This is one of those places where I'm afraid that our, um, our sentimentality and assurance that we're basically good people, all the things that our world tells us, um, puts us in direct opposition to what Scripture says. And it's very difficult for us to read this account honestly and to recognize the rebellious thoughts that come up in us when we read this. And I realize as I preached to you this morning that um, 
that God has blessed me with gifts that he has not blessed you with. And principally, that's growing up watching these truths in a very painful way and having parents who did not hate God but loved him in the midst of it. But I want to call you to love God and no idol. God is God. And he is good and you are not. You are not good. You are being made new. You are receiving from the Holy Spirit freedom in Christ. But you are not good. Your inclinations aren't good. Your heart is not good. And you know that. And so you have to accept what Scripture says to you. And this is a constant thing. When we open Scripture, we always think that it conforms and comports and reflects and submits to what we think and our best inclinations. And I hate to tell you, but Scripture never does that. Scripture is God speaking, and so it doesn't pander to us. Can't you just imagine a Facebook page that every day added a verse of Scripture? You know, the whole world would scream at it, unless, of course, it knew it was Scripture, and then it would yawn and turn the page, you know. So I want to go through, um, I want to go through this account, and I want us to read it with eyes that see it. I don't want us to read it with eyes that refuse to see it because of what it says. Now, we tend to think of uh, family life romantically, don't we? We live in the post-romantic age, and uh, Beethoven has clouded all of our perceptions about marriage and childhood and babies and everything. Um, we think that children are owed fun because back in the Middle Ages, children worked, and, and we're done with that. Now children play, right? And so our whole view of children is that they should not bear the work of the home. It's, it's just a curse. I keep trying to work against this with my own grandchildren, that if you have lots of children, the older children take care of the younger children. The mother goes on retreat. The mother goes on vacation. That's the purpose of older children, right? Didn't you know this? And so we think about our older children. Well, no, they shouldn't have to brush their, 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 their brother's hair. I remember when I was a little boy sitting on the toilet before church Sunday morning and my, my, my sweet sister, Deborah, always brushing my hair. I remember when I was a child that my brother, Joe, was the one I was worried about seeing my report cards. Remember I told you all of my report card said does not work up to potential? <laughs> you know, that's always what it was, you know. And so it was my brother Joe I was worried about. Why? Well, because dad was gone. Was that wrong? No, it wasn't wrong. Right? Wasn't wrong. And so we look at childhood sentimentally. Children shouldn't have to work. We should save them from work. We should take them on fancy trips and, and, and we should have a happy day. And so... This was so much a part of the culture of our home that every single night when we prayed in family devotions, I mean, we didn't have family devotions every single night, don't get me wrong, but every single night that we did have family devotions, okay, Joseph would always pray, 
dear Jesus, help us to have a fun time. And every time he'd pray that, I'd think, oh no, I've utterly failed, (laughs) you know. All he wants is a fun time. No, 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 it wasn't a fun time, it was good time. Help us to have a good time, year after year. This is our view of marriage and family life. And part of this is that the wife is your best friend and your husband is your best friend, right? And so she doesn't have bad breath and neither does he. Because you're best friends, right? Best friends don't have bad breath. Best friends, everything that comes out of them is a Hallmark card, greeting card, right? Okay, so this is what we think of family life. We think of husband and wife as true lovers. We all... (laughs) I I try to figure out how that can be healthy. And I know it's not, but Dave Carell tells me it's just normal. But it just doesn't seem normal. It seems like something's wrong. Doesn't it? It just is weird. Anyhow. Okay, I'm discombobulated. Um, So this issue of approaching marriage and family life romantically. Children shouldn't have to work. Husbands and wives are lovers. Grandchildren never need their diapers changed and should have candy put in their mouth every minute. I mean, honestly, this is, this is our idyllic view of, of what family life is, right? And listen, one of the problems with this is we have no concept of how awful adultery is. Because we live in a no-fault world where every um, ex-husband, ex-wife, whatever you call them now, is supposed to lie and say that they get along perfectly with their first husband or their first wife that there's no battles over children, that children have not been alienated, you know? And, and, and so you remember Alan Bloom in The Closing American Mind says that all the kids that he has at University of Chicago as students, that their eyes are dead. And he said it's because their parents divorced each other and they have no life left in them. They've been killed. And he says then the parents take them to a psychologist to heal them. And then he says, psychologists are the sworn enemies of guilt. And so in our world, we're supposed to deny that, and the psychologists deny, and everybody's just supposed to adjust, right? And if we ask you what the problem with divorce is, what everybody says is, well, they were true lovers, you know? They, they were their first sweethearts, you know? It's true love, it's Hallmark greeting cards, it's like kids playing in the backyard, you know? Life used to be so hard, and everything is easy because of you. Our house is a very, very, very fine house. Nobody even thinks about the issue of what? The issue of inheritance. The issue of inheritance. You know, the church today has no concept of being heirs. And if you think it's just money, you're crazy. Being God's heir, 
being a co-heir with Christ, you as a woman being called a son of God has no significance today. You just think it's sexist because we have no concept of being an heir. You know, our concept of being an heir is that we look at the back of cars and we see the bumper sticker that says, I'm, I'm spending my children's inheritance. You know, the godly does not lay up an inheritance for his children anymore. Who cares about being an heir? And so adultery is what? Adultery is bringing a snake into the nest with the little ones. Do you understand this? That's what adultery does. Let's be done with all this talk of true love. Adultery is a threat to the existence of a mother's children. And if there's one thing no mother should ever suffer, it is a threat to her children. Why? Because she fought and shed blood to give birth to them. That is the meaning of manhood. A man is never to allow a threat to his home. Because that woman has given her life to you. She's given her body. And so the real problem with adultery is actually not that he doesn't love her. The real problem with adultery is that he hates her. But he doesn't hate her. He just despises her children. Remember Joe Sobrin writing an essay when Bill Clinton had the Monica Lewinsky horror. And what he said was, you remember the, you remember the picture of Bill and Hillary walking to the helicopter with Chelsea between them holding hands that was released right in the middle of the Lewinsky thing? This is this horrible picture. And, and what Sobrin said is, there's somebody missing from this scandal. And you know who was missing? He says, the person missing from this scandal is the, is the father of Chelsea. In other words, Bill never considered Chelsea. Right? And let me tell you something. I don't care what you say to your, to your wife about her appearance, about her sense of humor, about the way she cooks. I don't care what you say to her about anything, but don't you dare forget her children. Don't you dare. And now why am I talking this way? Well, <laughs> because that's what's going on here in this history of the patriarchs. What we find here is a threat. There's a snake in the nest. And the snake is Ishmael. Okay? And he is in Sarah's nest. And he is threatening her son. Okay? So enough with the romance. Enough with the idyllic pictures. Enough with it. This is truth. This is family life. Okay? And what we see here is that there is in the nest with Abraham, who has the promise of God, with his wife Sarah, who is the wife of promise, and with 
her son Isaac, who is the child of promise. There is a snake. Now, what is the character of the snake? Well, we saw it back in Genesis 16, where we read, The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? Ishmael. Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And this is Sarah's home. And our text begins with what statement? Our text begins with this statement. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Mocking. His character, which God had prophesied, is showing in this mockery. And the mockery of his brother, Isaac. And no mother will take kindly to her son being oppressed by a half-brother who is a wild donkey of a man and is against everyone. But there's something deeper, much deeper going on here. And that deeper is God's decree that Isaac is the son of promise. And therefore, Ishmael must be cast out. God's decrees are inexorable. God's decrees are inexorable. And we see that clearly in this sad, sad account of a mother and her son being cast away from their husband and father, being forced out of their home and family. What had God said to Abraham about Ishmael? Well, if we look back at Genesis 17, beginning with verse 18, we read, and Abraham said to God, what? The same thing the Apostle Paul said to God about the Israelites, about the Jews. You remember? In Romans, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, what? Is God like you as a father? Well, let me think about it, sweetheart. Give me a little time. I'll talk to your mother. Remember the character in in Pilgrim's Progress named... Are you a pliable father? Is your no never no and your yes never yes? Is everything just a muddled sort of cute kind of disgustingly weak manhood? You understand what I'm asking here. Do you reflect the fatherhood of God to your children, to your wife? Are your children ever fearful of your judgment? Well, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. God said, No. 
But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Okay? Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now listen, it is terribly sad. Don't don't patronize God. This is tragedy. This is sad. This is our God. And we love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. This is our God. God's eternal decrees here break apart family unity and love, or should I say have been breaking apart family unity and love. Note the relationship between the two sons, and now it all comes to a bitter and final end. Verse 9, now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking, therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Sarah isn't not caught up in tenderness and affection or romantic love for her husband when she makes her demand. Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. If Sarah had been motivated by tender love for her husband, she would not have forced him to choose between his wife Hagar and his firstborn son Ishmael and his wife Sarah and his secondborn son Isaac. This account is not about romance and tenderness and family unity. We see it in Abram's response to his wife's ultimatum. He says, verse 11, the matter that Scripture records, verse 11, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Now, all the feminists who are so certain that women were just slaves serving their husbands before they came along and liberated them need to take a close look at this passage and many others like it in Scripture. Sarah's demand distresses her husband greatly, which is to say Sarah has weight She has glory. She has power. She has something that looks very much like what wives, mothers, daughters, and sisters have over their husbands, fathers, sons, and brothers today. Do any of us have any difficulty recognizing this exchange between husband and wife? What what husband? What husband is above being threatened by his wife? Let the man raise his hand. I see no hands. 
it is so ludicrous the way moderns think of the ancients. Let me tell you, Abraham is trembling in the face of his wife here. Greatly distressed. Because why? Because his wife, Sarah, was just a slave. He owned her. Oh, I am so tired of reading moderns in their conceit, talking about the ancients and, and, and how men and women related. Here's an idea, the two shall become one. This is why John Calvin says that the man that doesn't love his wife is a monster. A monster is not normal. A monster is a monster, right? Men have always loved their wives. Men today love their wives. Abraham loved his wife, and so he was greatly distressed. Now, Sarah, she doesn't seem to be blushing. <laughs> she doesn't seem to be fearful of Abraham, <laughs> you know. She seems to have her life ordered. She seems to be perfectly capable of taking a stand. She probably knew what Abraham was going to feel because of her demand, her ultimatum, right? She probably didn't sit and have anguish over it. It just probably just kind of came out of her naturally. Because why? Because there was a snake in her nest. Right? Abram's distressed. Verse 12, But God said to Abram, Do not be distressed because of the lad in your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. You remember what Adam's sin was? <laughs> you remember? God said to Adam, because you listen to the voice of your wife. <laughs> Here, God says, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And so here it is again, God's decree, God's will, God's sovereign plan, God's... Are you ready? I don't think you've heard this word from my mouth more than ten times in 16, how many years old are we now? 16, 18, 20? Oh no, we're 20 years old now. Maybe 10 times you've heard this word out of my mouth, okay? You know what word's coming, don't you? Everybody know what word's coming? Remember P, pliable? Here's another P, predestination. Okay? God's decree, God's will... God's sovereign plan, God's predestination. God's authority. God's power. Do we remember that it is He who hath made us and not we ourselves? That we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Do we take comfort from that? God's sovereignty, his authority, his power, his decrees. Through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Okay? Okay? Katie's sitting there with 
what, what's that one's name? Matthias. And if there's one doctrine we hold precious, it, I will be a God to you and to your children. But listen to this from Romans chapter 9. It will be up there. The Apostle Paul is dealing with the fact that the Jews have rejected their Messiah. And it's causing him great anguish because he loves his people. And this is what he writes. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? What is he so sad about? For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. He loves the lost. He loves them. There's only one other place in Scripture where a man speaks this way. Who is the man? It's Moses. You remember when God is about to consume the Israelites and he says, I'll, 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 I'll put my blessing on you, Moses, you and your descendants. And Moses would rather die. He'd rather be cursed than have God shamed in front of the watching world. These are your people, God. Remember, everybody sees. Do you really want to show yourself consuming your own people? This is your reputation. Well, this is a similar situation. Moses loved his people. The Apostle Paul loves his people for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not Israel who are descended from Israel. Okay? They are not all circumcised of heart who are circumcised of foreskin. They are not all baptized who are baptized. They are all not members who are members. Are you with me? Are you with me? We have to translate it into the new covenant. They are not Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Well, you know what we'll say then, right? We'll just say exactly what the Apostle Paul now says. 
what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. Well, why does he say that? Well, because all of us are going, God's not fair. God's unjust. God has no prerogative to do that. God must put himself at the service of every man and woman who's ever lived. God must give to each individual a free choice. Because if God doesn't give them a free choice, which means a choice that is in, that's free according to how I define freeness, and choice according to how I define choice, in other words, unless God conforms himself to my American notions in the year 2016 of what is fair, then God is evil. And listen, this, this judgment of God being evil is everywhere. Every single time our culture says that homosexuality is good, every single time Christians are persecuted for saying that adultery is evil, every time the world says no to the law of God, the world is not blushing to say that it knows what is good better than God does. That's always what's at stake. Every single time you're more aware and shamed over throwing a wrapper, I don't know, what would you throw out your window? A post-it note. Every single time you're more ashamed of throwing a post-it note out of your window as you drive in traffic than you would be to live gay. Are you with me? This is an attack upon God. It's a direct attack upon God. It is our world telling God that he is wrong and he is evil. The entire battle over homosexuality is the world saying to God, you are evil. You understand this. Because the world has no confusion about whether or not God has said it's right or wrong. All right, you with me? What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And then it must say what it says next. May it never be. May it never be. May it never be. There's no sophisticated logical argument here. None. What the Apostle Paul is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is simply opening up what Scripture says. He's not engaging in a philosophical discourse. He doesn't have some, some sneaky, logical, reasonable, philosophical way of tying you up in your brain so much that you forget that you were just accusing God of being evil. He says, may it never be. And that's the answer. May it never be. But then he goes, up and, and, and he goes on and shows why it must never be, right? May it never be. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. (laughs) Very sophisticated argument here, isn't it? God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. All right? So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And listen, there is no way of reading that without hating it or loving it. There ain't nothing in the middle. You either love it or you hate it. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Well, why would he bring in Pharaoh there? Well, because scripture says over and over again, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the Jews knew their Bibles. So when he brings Pharaoh in, he's bringing him in because it says over and over again in scripture, the inspired by the Holy Spirit, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So then, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Okay, is everybody holding on? Is everybody okay with this, you know? Are you okay with God? I mean, think of how absurd the question is. May it never be. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? (laughs) And this is just exactly, I mean, it's like the Apostle Paul is living in my brain better than my wife does. You know, he's anticipating every weasel place, every hiding place, every closet, every, every rebellion, every fear. He's like... Maybe he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. Check it out. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man who answers back to God? Who are you who answers back to God? David Carell is my blood brother. Do you understand this? And David Carell gives me my marching orders. Do you understand this? And David Carell has been saying to me regularly for weeks now, our children in this church do not fear their fathers. What is wrong with our fathers that their children do not fear them? And if your children don't fear you, guess what? Your children will not submit to this text of Scripture. They don't even have the concept. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And you say, well, are you saying that the Father should be God? <laughs> and, and here's my response, okay? All right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, the Father's God. I mean, it's so stupid. Enough with these stupid, stupid responses to things we don't like. No, the Father is not God. But he 
bears the fatherhood of God as an archetype, as a, as a picture. As a, 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 it's not even allegorical. It's like he's a father. It, it, he's a father only in so far as he reflects his father. So if his children are not afraid of him, he is not a father. Because to be a father is to have your children fear you. If your children don't fear you, you're lying about God. On the contrary, who are you to answer back to your father? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, and this is just, I mean, I mean, guys, I mean, this is just like, this is such a text of Scripture. God is willing. What is God willing to do? To demonstrate his wrath and make his power known. And oh man, the church today just falls all over itself trying to limit God's ability to shake anybody up, to scare anybody, to make his power ever known, to ever, ever demonstrate wrath. The insurance companies understand it. There are acts of God. But somehow the evangelical church can't conceive of acts of God. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even what? Even us. Whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from, from Gentiles. So here we is, grafted. We done been grafted. So I'm watching our roses. And some of them, they're doing all right. But a lot of them ain't. And the ones that ain't doing well, I'm looking. I'm looking at the little shoot coming up out of the ground to see what? To see whether it's coming up above or below the graft. If that shoot comes from below the graft, that rose will be dead. If that shoot is above the graft, the Jerusalem above is her mother. The church is her mother. She's a child of the promise. And she'll bear fruit. And what fruit do I want from a rose? 
No, all you like foodie duties. I don't care about the rose hips. <laughs> That'd not be the fruit I'm looking for. I want the roses. I want the beauty and I want the smell and I want the glory. Listen. Bible continues and says, So Abram rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And it's terribly sad. But who's to blame? Is it just God? Well, you remember that Ishmael was mocking Sarah's son. Yes, God's decree, but people, every single person who stands before God at the last judgment and is not a child of the promise, does not have a circumcised heart, does not have the baptism of the Spirit and the gift of faith, every single person who stands before God, including Pharaoh, including Ishmael, including Esau, Every single person here who stands before God, not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, will have no excuse, not one. Because you, by God's decree, bear the curse of Adam. And you bore that curse at the moment of your conception. Because that's how God does things. And who are you to answer back to God? And because whatever curse you got from Adam, you done just heaped and heaped and heaped and heaped and until your dying day, you will continue to heap sin upon your original sin. You have no right to answer back to God. None. It belongs to God to be God. It belongs to God to be God. It doesn't belong to you. God does not submit to your judgments and your sense of fairness and your sense of, of, of what comports to, to political ideology today. God is not the God of the philosophers. God is God. God is God. God is God. Remember my mother? These two well-meaning evangelicals come over to her house and her son's dying. And they tell her, don't worry, he's healed. He's healed. We know he's healed. She says, are you sure? Yes, God has shown us he's healed. Are you sure? Yes, God has shown us he's healed. I say, Mud, nice story, but what are you telling me this for? She's in her 80s. You know, this happened, you know, 40 years ago. She's, she looks at me and she says, God is God. God is God. And then she's quiet for a second. Then she says, we are not. And that child died. God does not have to save your children. 
He has given you precious promises about your children. God does not have to save your children. And every single parent here is going to face the moment, the day, the month, the year, where they're going to look at their children and they're going to plead with God that their children may live before him. Do you understand this? And God is sovereign. And you will decide whether you love your child more than you love God. When this church disciplines your children, you will decide whether you love your child more than you love God. When your children begin to blow up your home, to be, to be, to be wicked influences in your home, to mock your righteous children of the promise, and you allow that snake to live in your home and poison your home, you are making a choice whether you love God or you love your children. And let me tell you, this is not a hypothetical construct. We submit to God because he's God. We submit to him in the life and death of our little children. We submit to him in their suffering every single minute of every day. Shelley has to make a decision whether she will submit to God in the suffering of Anastasia. Is that right? Every single day that Kristen cares for the little precious children she cares for, she has to remind herself that God is sovereign over the suffering of newborn babies. Every time we counsel adults who themselves are committing the sins that were committed against them when they were children, and we must discipline them for that, we remind ourselves that God is sovereign. Do you understand this, people? Do not be an idolater. Do not manufacture gods after your own image, after your own sense of justice. Do you understand this? Don't do that. God does not need your help. God is perfectly capable of defending his own reputation. Now, <laughs> if I can get through it, I'm going to read you my dad's poem. I'm sorry. It's hoping. But I couldn't do anything else, right? I couldn't. I have to read this poem. So, this is the poem my dad wrote after his third son died. And the first two died when they were smaller, one when he was a couple weeks old and one he was four. And now, it was Joe. And Joe was a sophomore, a sophomore at Swarthmore, 
He was a national merit scholar. He was a cross-country runner, and he was headed to the mission field. He was God. He was more a father to me than my own father for a number of years. And God chose to take him. And it's particularly grievous in that he was taken because of malpractice on the part of the doctor. He should not have died. And this is the poem my dad wrote. It's a psalm on the death of an 18-year-old son. What waste, Lord. This ointment precious here outpoured is treasure great beyond my mind to think. For years until this midnight, it was safe, contained, awaiting careful use, now broken, wasted, lost. The world is poor, so poor it needs each drop of such a store. This treasure spent might feed a multitude for all their days and then yield more. This world is poor. It's poorer now. The treasure's lost. I breathe its lingering fragrance. Soon even that will cease. What purpose served? The act is void of reason. Sense, Lord, madmen do such deeds, not sane. The sane man hoards his treasure, spends with care, if good, to feed the poor or else to feed himself. Let me alone, Lord. You've taken from me what I would give your world. I cannot see such waste that you should take what poor men need. You have a heaven full of treasure. Could you not wait to exercise your claim on this? Oh, spare me, Lord, forgive, that I may see beyond this world, beyond myself, your sovereign plan. Or, seeing not, may trust you. Spoiler of my treasure. Have mercy, Lord. Here is my quit claim. You know what a quit claim is? Here is my shut up. Here is my silence. Here is the end of my, of my lament. Remember I said at the beginning that that God has given me a great treasure that I would have a father like that. Father who would not lie about the pain of life, would not have a funeral where he said that Joe went out doing the things that he loved to do and lived more in his 19 years than other men have lived in 70. 
my father would not let evangelicals rob him of the character of a sovereign God. And he never questioned the love of God. Remember, he said, my mother and he both said they were never as certain of the love of God as when they walked away from a fresh grave of one of their children. And so I give my father to you. He's your father. Whatever your pain, whatever your loss, God is the perfect keeper of our treasures. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we love you. We love you as you are. We do not wish you were any different. We love your sovereign plan. We love to be objects of your mercy. We are humble as Gentiles grafted in. And we pray, Lord, that we will not rebel against you in the difficult dispensations that you give us, but submit to you. And yea, even rejoice, knowing that our sufferings in this world are bearing the fruit of an eternal glory. And that then we shall see, as we are known today, we shall know you. Oh, Father, give us faith. We love you. We submit to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and receive the benediction. And now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.